chapter 6 and covering the tale today of the death of John the Reformed Baptist. Before we get any further, can I just let you know that we have um, a basket of, of gifts for mums out, out the front. Uh, in, it's, you can't miss it. Big basket, little treats and things inside there just to say thank you. We love you. Uh, God bless you. Motherhood is is re- in our day and age so despised by, by many who try and uh, design a better de- better design for women and really speak down at and spit at God's design, uh, the glorious calling for uh, women and motherhood and, and house rearing. So we just want to honor you and uh, we have a chocolate and a tea. And we, we honor you more than that, but that's, that's for everybody. That's for free. You've got to pay for the rest. Uh, I'm still just trying to find, but there's a new Bible, so I, I, it's hard to find places. Is Mark in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Here we go. I'm just kidding. If you're visiting... We like to have fun here, so uh, God bless you. We're, we're in Mark chapter 6, and, and what we've been seeing is Mark telling the story of Jesus, who is the king. The king of all kings, the Lord over all lords, but before he would be given that title and that position to sit on the throne of David and rule the universe and judge the world, he, he first has to walk the path of obedience to the Father, death on the cross to pay for his people's sins, then resurrection up out of the grave, and then uh, to be seated then on the throne. He, he has to, in some sense, according to the law, in order to save us, he has to earn our salvation. Uh, and, and a part of that salvation is us having a king and a new kingdom. And so he has to earn the, the kingdom. The, the kingdom is born out of the blood of its king. And we've been seeing how he preaches the kingdom is coming. He preaches that he is the king. He preaches what people in the kingdom must do and be like. And he preaches what the, the growth of the kingdom will be like. And the more he does that, and the more he shows that through miraculous power, he threatens the powers that be. The demonic realm shakes and flees and screams and attacks and oppresses. The more and more that this rescuing king comes and presses in on their territory. But today we're going to see that the royal kings of the earth also shudder and shake at the arrival of a new king. I'm going to read from verse 14 in chapter 6 through to the end of verse 29. Hear now the word of the living God. King Herod heard of all of this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, well, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and so he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. 
And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And she asked, and she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste said to the king, saying, I want, to gi- I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. But immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. May God bless the reading and preaching of his own inerrant authoritative word to us this morning. What a strange and providential move of God to give us this text on Mother's Day. It's a lot of talk here of mother, motherhood, terrible examples, and uh, we just won't hold back. We will have a, a dandy little look. <clears throat> what we have here is the death of one of the greatest men. In fact, according to Jesus, John the Baptist was the greatest man to have ever lived up until this point. He was, of course, the heralder of Jesus Christ, the one who in John's gospel would point out to his disciples and the crowds as he saw Jesus. He, he pointed to Jesus and said, that's the one I've been preaching about. Behold, look at him, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, the, the one who will baptize you with fire, the one whose sandals I can't untie, I'm just not worthy. It's that one. Go follow him, believe in him, listen to everything he says. It's that John the Baptist that is now beheaded in prison because of the political and adulterous affairs of a royal family. The king has come, and the earth shakes. We need to be introduced a little bit to Herod Antipas. It's very easy to get confused with all the Herods in Scripture because they're all just called Herod, but there's, there's multiple different ones. There's, I cannot, I cannot re- relate to you all of the family history of the Herodians, first of all, because it's far too confusing, and I would need a huge orb chart. And second of all, it's just not even PG or MA rated. It is horrendous what the Herodians, these rulers in the area of of Judea, got up to with their family. Nonetheless, it's going to be helpful if you, there's mainly two Herods uh, that that you're going to read about in the Gospels. The first one is the one who, who tried to have Jesus and with him Every young boy born a few years and under uh, slaughtered in the Jerusalem and Judea area. He, he had them killed because he had heard, as we've just been saying, that a king was here to be king of the Jews. And Herod the Great, this guy right at the beginning of the Gospels, he, was, uh, uh, he ruled over all of the Israel area. He was a great king. He was put there by one of the Caesars. He'd done a tremendous job at getting his power in play. And so he's Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled over all of Israel. And and he uh, he was grandson to a high priest. So he he liked to pretend that he was a Jew, even though he had come from the Edomites, one of the old enemies of Israel. But anyway, he, he, he pretended a kind of Judaism, and he ruled over them as their rightful king. And he was great, and he had, as a good Jew, he had ten wives at different times. Some of them overlapped. Uh, And one of those wives was Cleopatra of Egypt. That was one of his wives, through whom he had some of his sons. And out of all of these ten wives, some of them we don't have the names of, but they were there, uh, he had uh, seven sons. 
had seven sons, and before he died, he had two of them killed on account of suspicion. Good on him. Uh, and he then set up his kingdom, all of Israel, divided it in four, and gave it to, in his will to each of his four sons. Herod that we're reading of now, because Herod the Great, according to Isaiah's prophecy, died while Jesus was still in infancy. He tried to kill Jesus before Jesus even knew what right and left was. Herod was dead off of his throne and Jesus was able to return back to Israel. Well, his son now, one of those sons who rules over a quarter of, of Israel, is Herod Antipas, who we are uh, reading about this morning. And he was a ruler of, of the north where Jesus was raised and did most of his ministry in Galilee. He ruled there and then right there, he had another little section right next to Jerusalem. So imagine that he's, he's up north and he's down south. And at the moment, he is down south in his little palace nearby Jerusalem. And, and, and it brings up for us today in verse 14 that King Herod, after all of this preaching and miracles had been going on, this, this long time later, Herod hears about Jesus. And this is why it took so long, because he's all the way down at the southern end of the country and he's there partying and revelry. And the news of Jesus reaches King Herod. Look at verse 13. This was the, the last verse of last week's section. Uh, remember, Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples in pairs of twos to go through the area of Israel, preaching and doing many miracles. It says in verse 13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. There's no reason to think that as apostles with, with almost um, uh, equal power to do what Jesus had been doing. They were sent out with his power and authority to show who their master was. There's no reason to think that they were not uh, 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 attracting crowds similar size to Jesus was. So you've got 5, 10, 20,000 people gathering in all the different areas of Israel, and Herod, of course, starts hearing about this. And he starts wondering what the commotion was so to a little to end up our little introduction of Herod Antipas here. <clears throat> he was son of Herod the Great, and his ancestors were all Jewish kings and high priests, and he ruled right up until 39 AD. So all through the Gospels, uh, other than the guy right at the very beginning, this is the King Herod that we're reading about. He's the one who now beheads John the Baptist, and he is superstitious and guilt-ridden. You hear him say here, as everybody, all the, his gentlemen around his throne start asking the question, who, who's, this, who's this Jesus? They all have their theories. It's one of the Old Testament prophets. It's, it's Elijah, in fact, because we're prophesied that Elijah comes back to life, uh, comes back to the world and starts preaching before the Messiah comes. They were almost right. John the Baptist was the Elijah prophesied about, but anyway, we'll keep going. But he doesn't listen to any of these other solutions. There's, there's one thing in his mind, and that is that the man who is holy and righteous and sent of God, that he beheaded at the, at the beck of and call of his adulterous wife, that man is now raised back up. He's superstitious, like a good Greek Roman guy was. They had, they had theories that if someone was to die, but then the gods sent them back, then they come back with the gods' power. And so here's his theory that John the Baptist is alive again. He needs to see Jesus so that he can see whether this is the face that was sat down on a platter in front of him. He needs to confirm that this is not John the Baptist. Because if he's going through my kingdom and he's preaching, he has all the God's power. He's going to take me down. He's worried. He's superstitious. His conscience is keeping him 
up at night. And here's his conclusion. He is very much afraid. Why, of course, did he have John the Baptist killed? Let's, let's start getting into all of this very fanciful drama that Herod had made for himself in life. Why was John the Baptist in prison? Well, because of Herod Antipas, this, this, this king. Okay, you might ask, what, why? Why is he in prison? Well, uh, it tells us uh, in verse 17 through 20, well, he's in prison because of Herod's sister-in-law, Herodias. You say again, that explains nothing. We've all got sister-in-laws. That doesn't mean somebody has to get thrown in prison. Why does somebody get thrown in prison? Well, it's because Herod married his sister-in-law. Good guy. Still doesn't explain why prophets in prison. Well, of course, John the Baptist preached because that marriage was unlawful and sinful. Which, again, doesn't really explain why a guy's in prison. He just had a pretty common opinion. Well, Herodias, it says here, in the Greek, it's had it out for John the Baptist. Or in our English, it comes out, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him dead. Was it... Uh, was it Shakespeare, who said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And so why wasn't he dead? She wanted him dead. She's, she's now the queen, apparently. Why isn't he dead? Because Herod still had a conscience. He was still interested and superstitious enough back here before John the Baptist was dead. He's interested in all that's happening through John the Baptist's life and what he's saying. He's, he's intrigued, so he protected him. He didn't let Herodias' death wish for him come to fruition. And so Herod's fear protected John the Baptist. But we need to meet this, this stellar of a woman, Herodias. Herodias is exactly and precisely the kind of woman that Proverbs will warn young men to steer clear from. The kind of woman who eats up your household and, and, and will, will lure you in with, with lips like honey, but then steal your strength, destroy your income, break your family, and, and utterly destroy your legacy and honor. This is the kind of woman that Herodias was. Herodias was Herod the Great's granddaughter. Herod the Great, the original, I know some of you are squinting because you're doing the math. She's Herod the Great's granddaughter. Wow, she's in the royal family. Yeah, her husband's family. She was Herod the Great's granddaughter and she married one of Herod the Great's sons. Immorality was passed down the line of her grandfather, who had ten wives, and Herodias married her uncle Philip. Her uncle Philip became her husband, obviously to consolidate and keep royal power for her. And they had a daughter, Salome. And miraculously, the uncle and the niece had a, a beautiful daughter. Usually they come out a bit wacko looking, but this one was pretty, very beautiful. Salome, she was called, which was the name of one of Herod's daughters, but let's not get too confused. And Antipas, who was Herod in this story, fell in love with her, uh, his sister-in-law, Herodias. He is also her uncle. Don't forget that. He is also her uncle. He falls in love with his niece, who is also his sister-in-law, while he's visiting his brother at a party. And so he divorces his wife, who is the daughter of a king of a neighboring nation. He has a kingdom. He married the king next door's daughter, falls in love with his niece and sister-in-law, divorces the king's daughter. She, Herodias, divorces her uncle to marry the other uncle. And so they move back to Judea together to live with one another. And later in life, Salome, 
her daughter from her first uncle marriage ends up marrying one of her great uncles, becoming her mother's sister-in-law and auntie. Almost, she's her own great aunt. Salome becomes her own great aunt. And this is just the mess of what God warns us against in unbiblical marriages. So Herodias is now granddaughter of Herod the Great and his daughter-in-law. Salome is now great-granddaughter of Herod the Great and granddaughter of Herod the Great by marriage. Herod is now uncle, great-uncle, and stepfather to Salome and father-in-law to his brother. He is now Herod. Uh, sorry, Herod is now his own nephew. I did all the maths. He's his own nephew. Herodias is her own aunt, and Salome is auntie to her mother and sister-in-law to both of her parents. Why weren't more people like John the Baptist saying, this is not right? Is it any wonder? That I, John was just warming up when he said, just at the front of it, this is an unlawful marriage. This is not right. It's not right. Let's pick one of the things. You married your, your brother-in-law, your brother's wife. He hadn't even gotten to the whole nephew, uncle, niece thing. Let's just steer clear of that. You're not allowed to marry your brother's wife. And for that alone, maybe because they, he was saying so much more and, and we're not uh, precisely told the whole sermon that he would preach. We're just told that's what he was saying. Of course, there would have been more. He was preaching against the unlawfulness of the adultery going on in the authority of the day. This man was an incestuous pervert, and what we see from later on in the story, likely a pedophile, as many of the Roman rulers in that day were. And his new wife was an incestuous, adulterous, power-hungry whore. All of this while claiming to be royal Jews. You have to see the prophet's inclination and demand to preach against this. And the irony of verse 14, when it introduces him as King Herod, is that he was not even a real king. He longed his whole life to be called king. That was a title that had to be given by a Caesar, and his father had it, but he was never given the title of king. He was always just Herod Antipas, a, a ruler or a tetrarch, meaning he ruled over a fourth of a kingdom. He longed to be king. And here's Mark, I think just in ironic gesture saying, King Herod heard of all of this. Like Herod, his great, his father, sorry, he was threatened of this news of Jesus and John the Baptist. Well, we, we want to see first, look at verse 19. We want to see, start, start drawing out some lessons here. The power of the conscience. Verse 19 says, Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. Herod feared John. This king, as, as buried far away as his morals were, he was still awake and alive to the ringing sound of his conscience. That, that, that rung the bell loud and clear. You are condemned. This is sin. God will judge. Thou shalt not marry your brother's wife. The conscience, even among the royal kings, is still alive and well. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 tells us that the law of God is written on every person's heart. They don't have to ask their opinion if they agree with that. 
You don't have to ask if they feel like God's law is written on their heart. Maybe you're an unbeliever today and, 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 and you're not aware of, of how the conscience, though you've denied Christianity or whatever, how is the conscience still able to, to, to pierce your heart and your mind so often? It's because God put it there. God wrote his law of what is right and what is wrong on your heart. And the more that is excused, the more Romans 2 verse 5 becomes fulfilled, which says, because of your hard and unrepentant hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is, this is Herod. He had the conscience. It was, it was increasing his guilt. He, he knew that John was righteous, but he would not turn from his sin. So God's judgment was, was piling up against him. Herod feared John knowing he was a righteous and holy man, which means if you're able to identify what righteous and holy is, maybe you've got that friend, just eat. They don't even look like they've heard what the Ten Commandments are. They just, they, they, they're, they're like, they're goalposts. They're aiming to break them all. That's just the sort of life they live, and you love them, they're your friend, they're your brother, whatever. But they look at you, and they, they recognize that, you know, you're such a good guy, you're such a good friend, you're such a good person, I know you're better than me, whatever. When people, or maybe they don't, but, but, but we know some people who are still so dead to righteousness and yet able to recognize righteousness. We live in a day when people want to say any lifestyle and any activity is valid, and it's judgmental, wrong, and harsh, Evil to say that something is evil. It's absolutely evil to say that anything is evil. That's a fact. Say, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's abortion, it's, it's uh, orgies, it's homosexuality, it's, uh, uh, it, it's uh, fornication, it's pornography, it's whatever. It, it doesn't matter. That's their life. You have to leave it alone. There are no standards which will judge people. We are all our own lords. Just back off. And yet, at the same time, then they'll recognize things like, that's, that's a nice guy, that, that's a good person, that's a righteous, good law. Well, hang on. Is there standards or is there not? Is there the ability to point out good and evil or is there not? Or, or, or these same people, and we love them, but we're just pointing out the inconsistency. That, that they'll also then say maybe they're wronged, maybe they're harmed, maybe they're attacked or, or committed a crime against it, and they'll be quick to point out, I'm a victim. That was not fair. That was not right. That was harsh. That was mean. Oh, so there is evil again. There is such a thing as being able to draw the plumb line and say, this is evil and this is righteous. Because if, if the law comes to your aid to judge other people, if it does apply to you to help you, it also applies to you to condemn you. Here's what Romans 2 says. That the conscience helps sometimes and accuses you at other times. And, and, and like nerves in a hand that touches hot, sharp, or, or prickly things, like nerves that make you pull back. Friends, the conscience is given to you to help you to draw back from sin, know what is shameful and evil, or, or righteous and holy. It's not given to you just to torture you while you live, but to make you turn to Jesus. That's why God gave it to you. That's our prayer for you. If the conscience burns within, then bring it to Jesus to have it washed clean. He is able to save. So here's Herod, and yet even worse than him was Herodias, his niece, sister-in-law, wife. She was more vicious in silencing her conscience. She demanded John the Baptist's death. The conscience has power. And we just need to make a mark here that, that, that in a day that always says, 
you're offending people. People don't like hearing that. You're giving a bad Christian witness. Look at how many people won't listen to you preach the gospel now because you offended them on this moral issue. It's a bad Christian witness. You just need to put that to the side and realize John the Baptist is being elevated here as a great Christian witness because the most evil people of the day wanted him dead. You just need to be careful how we, how we judge other Christians who might offend other people or us. The conscience remains. For this woman up in the palace, surrounded by all of her sin, she is still plagued by conscience. That is the power of the conscience. J.C. Ryle said, in speaking of this situation, a solitary preacher in the desert with no other weapon than the truth of God disturbs and terrifies a king after his death. There's no weapons. And the king with an army is afraid of him when he's already dead because the truth pierces hearts. And yet the, the conscience, though it is so powerful, it has this, this potency, it also has an impotency, an inability. The impotency is not that it, it doesn't plague people's minds. It does. The problem is that the conscience cannot save. It is only ever a guide and a condemning agent. Maybe like a, the perfect GPS that'll tell you exactly how to get where you need to go. I've used this analogy before. And you're sitting there in the desert, pull over to the side of the road, and it, it's telling you where to go, how to get there perfectly. But you have no fuel in the car. While it can direct and it can yell at you that you're in the wrong place, wrong time, wrong direction, you're not moving. It can tell you that it cannot move you to where you need to go. And, and so, likewise, as a sinner in your guilt, the conscience, the law, the word of God can show you where to go, tell you what is wrong with your life, but it's not able to save you. You can't feel bad enough to wipe away your sin. You, you can't know how guilty you are enough to then enable your righteousness. The solution for all of this is that Jesus was given to take your sin. This is your only hope. And every Christian here rejoices in this. Not that we are righteous, but that we've been forgiven. That Jesus took our sin, took it to the grave, and came back up without it. And it stayed there. And he now, in his holiness and righteousness, joins us to him, giving us his righteousness, and brings us to heaven when we die. Because we are in him before the Father. This is the impotency of the conscience. That John is here in verse 20. It tells us, that he heard him. He used to go to the prison and he would listen to John the Baptist. He was so intrigued by all of this reasoning from the scriptures. In fact, it says he was greatly perplexed. Another translation would be immensely distressed. And yet he was glad to go and hear him. So many people think that hearing the truth, knowing the truth, weeping and wailing about the truth is enough. But knowing the truth and hearing the truth and weeping and wailing about the truth is not enough if we do not obey the truth in repentance. Otherwise, you are no better than Judas or the demons and no more saved than Herod. To feel bad, to be aware of sin is just not enough. You must turn from it, give it up and pursue Jesus, salvation that is in him according to what is written in the word. Herod is now self-condemned. And can I just take a moment to, to point us to the, the, the great reflection of John the Baptist, who I'll just call John the Presbyterian. Don't go looking in your pages of Scripture. You won't find him there. There's not, nothing about Presbyterianism, Presbyterianism in the Bible. Okay. 
just a joke. Well, it's not, but we love you. Uh, John the Presbyterian, of course, I'm referring to John Knox, the, the Scottish reformer, 1,500 years departed from John the Baptist, who in the 1500s did the, led the reforming Protestant work away from the Catholic Church in Scotland. He was, he was the one figurehead who blew like a trumpet in the highlands of Scotland to bring the reforming work. And, and some of his strongest preaching was, like John the Baptist, against the adulterous, idolatrous queen. He would oppose in writing and preaching Mary Tudor, who was bringing back Catholicism into England after generation and a half of reforming work being done in the Anglican Church. She was undoing it. She was bringing back the idolatry of the Catholic Mass, and he would stand there and cry out that she is worse than Jezebel, who multiplied the idols of Israel. But this Mary Tudor, she's multiplied the idols in England grander than Jezebel ever did. And we, people called him harsh and mean and just so unchristian until he, he kind of prophetically became very much proven and justified as she has now become known in history as Bloody Mary, a, a vicious and bloodthirsty queen who, who killed publicly executing nearly 300 Protestant ministers and Christians. This is how she's gone down in history. This is the man that he would rail against. <clears throat> And he fled uh, Scotland under her persecution uh, and came, uh, sorry, fled England and then came back to Scotland, his homeland, after she had died. And he started preaching everywhere about the Reformation truths of being justified by faith alone. And he never stopped speaking about the evil of the queens that were ruling at the time. He was chased by armies and soldiers. There was a death warrant out for him by the queen. Mary of Geese. <clears throat> he opposed her, and when her daughter came to power, Mary, Queen of Scots, she also tried to, to where he couldn't be chased and threatened. She knew you, you can't do that to a Scottish Presbyterian guy. He'll never be convinced. But she had a meeting with him, this beautiful 20-year-old, and tried to seduce and tempt him over to Catholicism and offer him all of this political power. And he had written that he was going to go and try and win her young heart to Jesus, and in that meeting, what it started was debate after debate and interview after interview that just became hotter and hotter in fury and opposition. And as he was preaching this ever so hot gospel against her and her sins, and she would not back down either, as hungry as Herodias for the power of the throne. He was, as we said, a, a traveling preacher because to stay in one place would be to be found and, and killed. And so he would travel from Catholic parish to Catholic parish and get in and preach and there would be revivals. Literally, Presbyterians had revivals and they were, they were standing up and they, it was out of the liturgy, but they would get up and they were excited and these, these well, they were Catholics at the time. And, and these priests were just throwing away their, their, their Catholicism and coming over to the Reformation side and hundreds and thousands of people being converted and, and then he would flee and then the armies would, would arrive and they would keep on trying to find him and one time they, they barraged and slaughtered dozens of Christians for converting from Catholicism. This is, and, 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 and they were told, anyone sees John Knox preaching Christ, you are allowed to shoot him on sight and people tried and he never stopped preaching. John the Baptist had a cousin, John the Presbyterian, and they were both so much alike, on fire by the Spirit of God. What they knew 
is that the church, and I think this is largely lost in our day, the church is meant to be the conscience of the state. We are called not to take the power from them, not to riot or rally and tear down walls or loot or do any of this nonsense. We are to be those armed with the sword of the word, bearing conscience to the state, telling them what their future judge and Lord Jesus demands of them. Though we are pressed down, squeezed out, and often killed throughout history, the church must go on bearing witness, trusting that we overcome by the blood. This is what John the Baptist did. This is what John Knox did. It was said of John Knox, last, last note here on, on Knox. He used to pray for Scotland's revival. He would pray against the tyrannical rulers, these imprecatory psalms against the enemies of God. Mary, Queen of Scots, one time, after hearing and reading the zealous and famous prayers of John Knox, said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all of the assembled armies of Europe. This is another witness to the power of the conscience. It seemed that Herodias and Mary of Scotland and England took a page out of Jezebel's book. They sought to kill the prophets who denounced their sins. And so we get to this scene of the party. Go, go back to Herod, which is still in a little flashback within the story. Herod's worrying, and, and we enter into his mind as he remembers the night of John the Baptist's death. It was his birthday party. King Herod, down in verse 21, an opportunity arose when his birthday came, and he gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. This is, this is a gentleman's event without the gentleman. There was ladies there, but they weren't exactly invited guests, if you know what I mean. They weren't exactly in their nicest dresses. They were wearing very little. This was an event where, where the, the official rulers, which would be both Jews and Gentiles in, in office, and his ranking military men, the, the leaders of the thousands, and the socially prominent friends, these would have been the Herodian Jews who sided for political purposes with Herod's family saying, they've got the lineage, they used to be priests, let's side with them, they've got the money and the power. This is how we'll get back our country. Here they are, they were all here and the most twisted part of the night comes while they're drunk. At the end of the night, he's showing off all of his power, they're reveling. And his niece, who is also his great niece, and is now his stepdaughter, comes in and becomes his sexual object. Half-naked would be far too modest here. She would be dressed less than that, and the dancing was suggestive, erotic, likely with plenty of physical touch, and all the while the girl is very likely a teenager. While he's drunk, burning with sexual lust for this stripper stepdaughter, he promises half of his kingdom, up to half his kingdom. This is an idiom that kings would use. You might remember this from the book of Esther. It was just an idiom that a king would use to say, ask anything, even up to half my kingdom. It's like what we might say, I'll give you anything, I'll do anything. That's what he's asking. He wants, to, he wants to reward her for this filthy act of sexual objectivity. And she, she runs to her mother. She says, mom, husband's birthday. He's asked me this, what should I do? And this woman who is using her sexualized daughter as a pawn in her chess game tells her, go and ask my husband, your uncle and great uncle and stepfather to request the head of the righteous man who bears witness against our sins. This is the climax of evil. Romans tells us this. It's never enough for people to enjoy their sin. 
They need to silence the, the sin, uh, the conscience within. And, and if you'll be a conscience without, and you'll, you'll bear witness, they, they want to, maybe it's politely at first, other times it might be with the armies of Europe. They, they need to silence what is being said against them. They don't like it. They, they despise it. And, and ours should not just be judgment. Ours should be invitation to repentance and salvation in Jesus. That, that should be our bearing witness to them. And, and yet it climaxes here for her in bloody murder as she silences the prophet. There should have been thousands more in Israel bearing this kind of witness. There was not. He was the one righteous man doing so. She silenced it. She adds to her her adultery, her incest. She adds to it the blood of the greatest man that had ever walked the earth. And there's an effect here. Herod is, look down at verse 26. As that request comes to him, the king was exceedingly sorry. Again, it's just not enough. Sorrow doesn't wipe away sins. He's exceedingly sorry. His conscience was strong, but not more powerful than his pride because I made a promise. I can't go back on a promise. He should have listened to the, to the Torah, which tells us if we make an oath in a rash moment, right, take this advice. If we make an oath in a rash moment and we come to our senses, apologize and pay the debt, but do not go and fulfill what you've foolishly or sinfully owed. Well, he's a king. No, he's not. He likes to think he's a king. He's far too proud to repent in public. And he's got his reputation to think of. It says here, because of his guests, his military men, all of his friends in high places, he did not want to be dishonored in front of them. And so he listens to the voice of his murderous wife. He adds to his adultery, incest, lust, and pederasty, he adds cowardice and murder. And John the Baptist's heads go from his shoulder to the executioner's hands, onto a platter in front of Herod, in front of Salome, and then is carried to the bedchamber of her mother. And there it stands. And she thinks she's won. She thinks she's overcome the judge and is now free to, to sin as she pleases. Do you think in that moment her conscience was ever silent? I think it rung like a, like a bell had never been rung before, ringing through her ears. And this dead man's head was there, still speaking to her. There's a lesson from John the Baptist. While his body was taken and, and buried, we can take a lesson. Often, often, the lot of God's servants on earth is to receive no glory whatsoever. We have to be, be able to say with 2 Corinthians 4, with with John Knox and with Paul and with Jesus and with John the Baptist, we have to be able to say in good conscience, and friends, I want to ask, do you believe this? Where Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away or chopped in two, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, Herod's entire kingdom. But the things that are unseen are eternal, like John the Baptist's rewards. If John had looked to the physical, his life would have been lost in the pursuit of pride and fame. But believing God, 
standing firm on righteousness, he gained an eternal reward not worthy of comparison with Herod's riches. They are dust on the scales. Friends, do not seek or measure success by the world's glory. We must pursue obedience at all costs. Maybe this isn't even a, even a word for mums today. Do not pursue the glory and the fame of, 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 of pleasing or impressing the world's standards for whatever they, they pretend womanhood is. They applaud things like Salome, the teenager who's dressed half-naked, dancing for other gentlemen for money. The world loves that. That's the height of freedom for women. Let's, let's just be those who are willing to stand on the word in the glory of God's design and say, we don't seek that kind of glory we have a greater eternal reward in, in sowing into our, our husbands and our children or, or, the, or the church family if unmarried. There is glory in obedience that Herod and the kings do not know anything about. But we also need to just draw here as we close out a lesson from Herod. Here's a perfect picture. I, I know Mother's Day, often a verse gone to is Proverbs 31. The first half of Proverbs 31 is about the, the man, the, the son who is put, warned not to pursue evil women, but rather pursue a woman like this. Right? So the first half is all this mother, this queen mother warning her royal son, don't go near the, the adulterous woman. Don't give away your strength. It says, do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Herod needed to hear this. Because the mother says, it's not for kings to drink wine and to take strong drink because you will forget what has been decreed for you and you will pervert the rights of the afflicted. Sexual adulterous women take kings and pervert them against their purpose of protecting the, the righteous and upholding justice and, and turn them against their God. That, that's what Proverbs 31 says. That's what we see happen with Herod. And, and then next we're told about this excellent, amazing wife. Well, Herod is the perfect picture of what happens to men when they are led by their lusts. They get involved with sensual women. Young men, you need to hear this. Gentlemen, tempted or raising sons, we need to hear and reiterate this as often as the Proverbs do, which is daily. They get involved with sensual women. They become cowards. They seek to please the lady, and then they're distracted from their God-given purpose and calling. They sink their life in the pursuit of pleasing an adulterous woman. Their strength is utilized in entirely the wrong pursuits. And we can see from Herod's end. Can I tell you just what isn't told in this story? The end of Herod's life. He ends up getting to meet Jesus as his conscience was silenced more and more through the murder of the prophet and the silencing of them and the revelry and the drunkenness. He finally gets to meet Jesus as Jesus is being judged by him to go and die on the cross. And he sees him face to face finally and he's relieved. It's not John the Baptist. He's okay. There's no, there's no need to worry. There, there is no judgment coming for his sins. And he mocks Jesus, spits on him, and sends him back. Later on in Herod's life, he is destroyed. His entire army is wiped out by none other than his former father-in-law, insulted by the divorce of his daughter. His armies rise up. Come and destroy Herod's army. All those friends he wanted to impress back at the party, dead. Blood in the streets trying to defend Herod's vain land because he insulted a king and his daughter. What a beautiful irony. So he loses all of his army trying to defend his border. Rome has to come and help, never ends up getting there. So he's now a fake king 
with an incestuous family, no army, and his wife, her brother, is made a king. He gets the title from the Caesar to be made a king. That, that's, that's Herod's brother-in-law, stepbrother. He's, he's pretty infuriated by that. And so Herodias tempts him, assures him, we've got a plan and a plot to fool the Caesar. We will also get you a king title and me a queen title. This is back in the 30 ADs. And, and so they write and they go and visit the Caesar. But before they get there, the other brother who has made the king tells Caesar about their plans. Caesar takes them, arrests them, and sends them off to some godforsaken part of France in banishment until they die. Now he has no kingdom. He has no land. And had he but repented, he would be in a land immortal. But Jesus, can we just look at Jesus? He's not really mentioned much in this story, but he's here. It's pointing to him, at least by this tremendous contrast between Herod and Christ. There was a king who was not rebuked by John, but was worshipped by John. Jesus did not strive for position. But having the highest position, gave it up in order to serve and seek and save the lost. Completely unlike Herod. And he received the kingdom from his father, where Herod was denied the kingdom both by his father and the Caesar. Jesus did not revel in sin, defiling his kingdom, but kept himself holy and perfect and righteous so he could make his people holy. Jesus did not seek the pleasure and thus cause his people death, like Herod did, who sought the pleasure of another woman and had his men, his officials, his people slaughtered by an enemy. Jesus, though, chose the pain, chose the blood, chose the death on the cross to pour out blessings on God's people. And Jesus has received an unending kingdom, to which every single person will either enter or be judged by that king. Do you know where Herodias and Herod Antipas went? Do you know who they met the moment they died of starvation in banishment? They saw Jesus, who they had mocked, who they had spat on, who they had sent away. And, and somewhere in the crowd there was John the Baptist, who they had beheaded, whose blood they had shed. Friends, that is the tale and the end of every single one of us, young, old, male, female, grew up in church, hardly ever been. Every one of us will, will die and face Jesus for judgment. And the cry now is come to him while he can be a savior. Because to go to the grave with your sin is to meet him as a judge. But he has been judged for you. He's been judged for the kings and the paupers, for the men and the women, for the adulterous or the kind of goody-two-shoe guys. Everyone has sin enough to condemn. Jesus has been condemned for you if you'll just turn in repentance and faith, receive his love and grace. You'll never see a drop of God's wrath against you. This is the tale of Herod and John the Baptist, and I pray that we would take a lesson and come to know Jesus as our king. Let's pray. God eternal, ancient of days, Lord of lords and King of kings, you are the only true God. You are the only true king with authority in yourself. You rule over all. You rule over all nations. You, you judge all kings and rulers, but God, you also rule over every individual. 
And every one of us here has, has either a relationship with you where you are our judge and our enemy, where we rebel and reject and try and silence you and run from you, or you are our king and our friend and our savior whose judgment you bore for us. Father God, I, I pray that people who, who, who relate to you now as an enemy, though they might deny it or try and run from it, I pray, God, that you would break down their hearts. You would invade the, their souls and give them new life and faith to believe and be saved. And I pray, Lord, that those of us who know you as our king, that we would go bearing witness for you to the world, to our friends, to our enemies, to our family. We would tell them of the soul-saving love of Christ that stopped at nothing, that died went into the grave for the sake of seeking the lost. I pray, God, that you would build us up in your most holy faith. You would add souls to our number and pluck them from the darkness. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word and gospel. Amen.